I'm going to pray one more time. I know that pastors pray all the time like this. I don't know if they pray in private, but at least in public we pray a lot. So let's pray. <laughs> uh, we just come before you. We uh, love you. We honor you uh, in the best way we can. And uh, far more than we love you, we know that you love us. You love Hope Church and the people here. And uh, you call this church out to uh, be hope, be the house of prayer for everyone. And uh, I just ask you that you will just drive this, drive that stake deeper into the ground so that they would be hope. They would be the house of prayer for everyone, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. So do you pray a lot? Do you? I don't know. I mean, I don't know, okay? Just asking, okay? My church in New Jersey was called Joy, so we did not have to pray a lot. We just had to be happy. <laughs> but you guys are house of prayer for everyone, so you have to pray a lot. All right, so we're going to start by praying, okay? I'm going to give you 10 minutes. Would, would you come up here or play some music, okay? And... Um, I just feel we should do it this way. I'm going to give you exactly 10 minutes, okay? And uh, you pray. Uh, just uh, think about what was talked about yesterday. I don't know if you, were, if you had time to process the message, okay? Uh, and uh, just pray about your church. Uh, if you're a leader, one of the uh, major duties of leadership is to pray. Pray for whoever is under you, I, you know. Let me, let me put a disclaimer, okay? I don't, okay? I, I am not very faithful praying for my people. Uh, you know, I'm in charge of all the cell groups. In my mind, I know that I should be praying for them all the time. I, I don't, okay? Only when I have the monthly meeting, oh, I have to pray. <laughs> then I pray, okay? But you, we are supposed to, okay? So, but once again, you are house of prayer for everyone. I'm not. So you have to pray a lot. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to give 10 minutes. Uh, let's just, just pray, okay? Just, just pray. So Lord, we just come, come before you and ask you that you will just pour, pour out the spirit of prayer over this church and everyone here, Lord God. Amen. We pray that this Hope Church will indeed uh, continue to be and become more of the house of prayer for everyone, Lord God where the fire never dies out, oh God. In Jesus' name, we ask you to fulfill her calling, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the reason why I ask you to do that is because as we were worshiping, you know, I really felt the sweet, sweet presence of the Holy Spirit, which is wonderful, but I actually felt it was kind of thin. Okay, and I'm not, you know, who am I? It may be my breakfast, okay? <laughs> That's making me feel that way. But uh, I just wondered, maybe, uh, maybe your prayer uh, has gotten thinner. Okay, so just, just a thought, okay? Just a thought that you will not forget what your call is. You know, I think uh, whenever God has a call, it does not just easily come. You know, when God said to Joshua, this is the land that I promised you, it's yours. It didn't just come, right? 
it was a promise, it was theirs, but they still had to go fight. Brutal war. And it is the same way. I believe, you know, God has called this body of Christ to be the house of prayer. And that is a high call, but it's not going to just come. There, you know, for every call, and every one of us has a call, and for every call that we have individually as a corp- or as a corporate body, we will have to fight for it. And um, I just hope that as you grow older, you know, maybe when you're young in college and singles, you have a lot of time, you know, you just go for it, you know. You know, you have no brain, but you have passion, whatever, I don't know, okay. But, uh, um, but as you grow older, uh, you know, life takes over, right? You got kids and work and, I mean, there's all these things um, that the society tells us we have to do. I mean, we did everything. It was stupid, you know, all the music lessons, all the sports camps. Didn't help my kids at all. <laughs> I mean, like, they didn't do it. They took nothing, okay, when they grew up. It, just, it, it was just like we, we, we just felt we had to do it because everybody said we had to do it, okay? If I just had the mind, more mature mind, I, I think I would have said, oh, no, you know, not that. Just these two things or whatever. Okay, but everybody was saying we had all these things, we did all the things. Just kids got upset, you know. Um, actually, they lost interest in some of the things because we were pushing it instead of naturally coming up and uh, helping them grow in what they are supposed to be. So anyway, my point is um, we allow things to take over and the passion that that fire that is supposed to become a bonfire, sort of shrivels to a little candle. And if you're not careful, it may just get snuffed off. Okay, so just really, that you will not forget. I, um, you know, I don't get to preach a lot at my church because I'm an associate pastor now. I preach like every two months, which is a lot for their standard because their, their associate pastors like usually never preach. But I get to preach about, so far, it was not like scheduled. It's like whenever he, he has to go away, it's okay, now you preach. It's like that. So, uh, you know, so I have a lot of time to think about sermon, right? Because, you know, as you're studying the scripture, these thoughts come. And so the next sermon I'm going to preach, I'm, I'm planning on preaching is, uh, Where's Your King? And it's from the passage where Jesus has a crown of thorns and the, um, you know, soldiers are mocking him and they say, Here's your king. And my point is this. And my sermon is going to be, part of the sermon is going to be about, uh, parents, you know, what are you doing? You know, when you're so focusing on your kids, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to make them world leaders? Are you trying to make them high in the social ladder? Is there where your king is? Is there where Jesus is? Because Jesus is not there. Jesus is always going for the lower one. Right? And that's the king. Jesus came here. Jesus went for the down and out. And if God uses you to be high on the ladder of the leadership in the world, praise God. That's good. That's, but we should not be seeking it. Right? We should be faithful in what we're doing. And if God takes us there, then we'll glorify God that way and use the influence that God gives us. But it's very, very important. This is what we were talking about yesterday. Where is your heart? Where is your heart going? Are you with me? Am I, I hope I'm explaining myself okay. All right? What, what, are, what value are you putting in your kids? Okay. 
you may be coming to church and you may have an experience with God. So you love God, but if that is a value that you are putting in, and you have to really examine your mind. By the way, this is not the message that I'm preaching, okay? <laughs> Teaching today. This is something else that, you know. But if that is a value that you are putting in, that's where they're going to go. So you may be searching God, pursuing after God. By the time they become 20 and 30, they are not there. They are not even in the church. Is that what you want? Or do you want to train your kids to be like Jesus? When I started church, one of the things that I, I am really seriously uh, wondering how I'm going to do it, because I really want to do it, is I have this new phrase. Do not just hear the good news. Be the good news. Don't just come to church. You hear the good message and go home. It's all about you. You with me? I mean, American Christians, it's all about me. It's, everything's about me. You know, that's why some people, they don't even come to church. They're, oh my gosh, I cannot believe it. They came, I saw them, and they're not in the service. Where are they? In the parking lot. Why? Because the kid is sleeping. What do you mean? Your kid is sleeping, so you don't come to worship because you worship your child. Oh my gosh. So that he can have nap? Let him cry. Big deal. Okay, what value are you putting in in your children? For example, all these things. We have to be very careful because values are the most important thing. That's what you become. And whatever values that you even unconsciously communicate to, to your children, that's what they become. And by the time, so, you know, it is reported 80% of youth, when they go to college, fall. we're talking about kids who are active in their church, evangelical churches, 80% of them fall away. Why? I think a major part is because of these things. Okay? Even as they are at church, they are thinking, all right, when I go to church, when I go to college, I'm going to drop out for a while because career is more important and all this. Okay? And they just get suckered, suckered in. And they become idol worshipers, basically. Okay? Worshiping the idols of the world. They are not pursuing God. They are not trying to bring the kingdom of God on earth. So, very, very important. Okay? So, my point, it's a long way about, but my point was, do not forget God's call upon your life. Let other things go. And this literally is going to what I'm going to, I'm going to talk to my people when I start the church. So on Sunday, I'm really thinking about doing the service in the afternoon. And my call is going to be like, in the morning, go serve somewhere as a family unit. Because families do not do things spiritually together. You go to a Sunday school, youth group, and come home. You don't really talk about it. Right? You don't really share. I mean, how many families have family worship? Okay, so it's all separate. They don't share their Christian faith together, spirituality together. So I'm going to say, you know, this is what I really would like to see happen. In the morning, go some, some, serve somewhere. Go nursing home, visit, you know, even visit your grand, grandma or uncle who is nobody's visiting. Okay, be, a good, be the good news to somebody. Okay, do not just hear the good news. Be the good news to somebody. Go feed the homeless, go visit, whatever, okay? Whatever. Go to a small church that do not have youth group or Sunday school because nobody's there to teach. Go teach Sunday school. As a family unit, go, serve, and then come. 
I don't know if it, it will happen or not, but I really would like to see it happen, okay? Uh, and this is what I'm going to say. No sports on Sunday. Okay, unless, I, I'm praying about this, unless, like, your son is, like, Lionel Messi. Okay, <laughs> this is the way he's going to glorify God. Okay, then, maybe, I don't know. Okay, I don't know. Okay, I haven't thought it through. I'm thinking about this. But average kids, oh, my, you're not, he's not that talented. Okay? <laughs> It's all put to put on the college resume, right? And this is what I'm going to say. If your kid has the whatever, all the credentials to go to Harvard, just go to, I don't know, what? what's another next tier level school? Okay. Not that low, okay. <laughs> well, okay. If you go to Harvard, like, let him go to Cornell or something like that, okay? If, he, if she is, has all the stuff to go to Cornell, shoot for University of Maryland. <laughs> Just, if University of Maryland type, something else. And this is the point. In Christian life, there has to be a sacrifice. There's got to be a sacrifice. And American Christians, we no longer believe in sacrifice. And when it comes to our children, it's even worse. I will sacrifice for God, but not you. You know what I'm talking about. What is they, that doing to your kid? There's no sacrifice in Christian life. And I would like our kids to know from elementary school, at least, in following Christ, there is a sacrifice. There's always a sacrifice. Learn to sacrifice now. But dad, I want to go to this college. Well, sacrifice. For the sake of Jesus Christ, you, are not, you may not go to this school because we're going to honor God. There is, there is going to be a sacrifice in Christian life. Okay. My guess is actually the opposite. The opposite would be the result. You cannot do what everybody's doing and be noticed. If your kid from the age like, I don't know, three or two or, you know, in the pouch, begin to feed homeless or whatever, it becomes their life. It changes them. This is the problem with Asians, and I'm an Asian, and I have this weakness. We were so uninvolved with the community. From our, we have never seen it from our parents. This is not true with, like, white Christians. For white Christians, it is a part of their spiritual, spiritual life. They serve the community. So they grow up serving the community. So when they go to youth group or college, it becomes, of course. But for us, we don't. We have never seen it. So it is a kid that is not exposed to these type of things when they were young, whatever it is, okay? And here we're talking about serving other people in practical ways. When they become adults, the threshold is so high. It is very difficult to get there. But if they grow up doing these things, what is that woman who is uh, marrying a prince uh, of UK? What's her name? Merkel. Merkel? Angela? And Meghan Merkel, right? She grew up serving the homeless since she was in like elementary school all on her own. It becomes a part of you. And this is my guess. When they write on their college essay, what did you do? And if you say, our family 
since I was a baby, we were serving the community. It is, this is who I am. This is my DNA. I don't live for myself. I really, it doesn't matter. I mean, you don't write things like this, but you know, it doesn't matter if I go to Harvard or what. I mean, you don't write those things, but if you, if you show it, that person is going to pop up. Okay? That's my guess. I think I'm right. Because people in good schools are looking for people who are different. You know, I have a kid, um, you know, I don't know how you say it in, in, in English, Hube, right? Somebody who graduated from the same school who's many years younger than I am, okay? A kid that I taught went to my alma mater. And he's a smart guy. Uh, he is in, on the board now in the East Coast. He interviews all these kids. Okay? And I, I didn't even go to an Ivy League school, but anyway. <coughs> and he says, uh, nowadays, it's like half the kids that apply are valedictorian. They don't even look at the application stuff. Okay? All diamond a dozen. All the same. All the same resume. They're looking for. Anyway, my point is not about going to good school. My point is, do not forget you, who you are. You have to fight for it. Okay. Christian life is always a battle. You know, even if there is no apparent battle, there is a battle, because the society is always putting stuff. Okay. It's always a battle. Anyway, let's go to today's session. Uh, let's look at Numbers 12, 1 to 16. How much time do I have? Okay. Numbers 12, 1 to 16. Uh, would somebody read it? Somebody who has good reading voice? Okay, Pastor Q, who has a good reading voice? Because nobody will say Pastor Q is saying nobody has good reading voice here. <laughs> All right. Pastor Mimi, please read for us. No, one to see the whole thing. Okay, somebody else. What's your name over there, right in the aisle? Yes, you. For, 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 yes. Okay, would you stand up and read it, please? The whole thing, yeah, whole chapter. Okay, thank you very much. Last night, we talked about our relationship with God, and the message was, unless we are broken, God will not use us, at least the way we need to be used, or the way God wants to use us in a positive way. Of course, God can use anyone, but we do not want to be the negative examples, right? So God, God will not use us. God does not use strong people, but broken people. That was our uh, message yesterday. Uh, today, we want to talk about a leader's relationship with his or her superior officer. We are all men and women under authority. There's always somebody above us, and that is a healthy organization. One of the weaknesses of Protestant church, and Hope is a Protestant church, is, you know, we are called protestant right we we came into being by protesting <laughs> which is what it is and there's some good things that you can throw off just false authority 
and you know, Roman Catholic Church was very corrupt. And if, you know, if you know the history, Martin Luther did not want to come out, actually. He wanted a reformation inside the Roman Catholic Church. It is a Catholic Church that kicked him out. That's how Reformation began. And that is a very important distinction. But what happened with the Protestants is we don't, have, we don't have this concept of having authority over us. And people have this thought that they can do whatever they want. And nowadays, it has gotten uh, the worst it has ever been. People do whatever they want. Even people who are sitting in church, we don't even know how many of them are real Christians. Because they think, well, preacher, you can say whatever you, you think. I have my own thoughts. So literally, I'm sure it's not the case with hope. Okay? But look, this is, I'm, I'm talking about the state of the affair in American church today. Literally, they believe they, they can create their own religion. And a lot, I don't know what percentage, but... I would not be surprised if it is more than like 30%. Okay? Just sitting around in the church, believing they're Christians, and even whatever the preacher is saying, they're picking and choosing, oh, I, I believe that. Okay, that I don't believe. They create their own religion. This is like the, as bad as it, as it can get with Protestant, because they don't have a concept of having authority over them. They think they are the authority. So it's very, very important. We have to restore this thing. And one of the positive things of the Catholic Church with all their problem is they understand that they are people under authority. And we have to restore this thing. So that's what we're going to talk about. <clears throat> so, you know, this is about your relationship with Pastor Q or, and Pastor Mimi. Uh, if you're a deacon, it is your relationship with your elders. Because this, there is a hierarchy in the church. And, you know, the members are not here. It is their relationship with deacons and elders. I'm not trying to create a really, you know, steep hierarchical thing here. But I'm really talking about what the Bible says. Restoring some of it. All right? And, uh, you know, if your church is like an average, you know, American church, you know, the congregation will have no respect for you anyway. But... Um, that's how it goes, you know, that's just how it goes. Oh, you're a deacon, so what? You're an elder, so what? You know, that's how it goes. But at least among ourselves, once that respect for authority is restored, it will here, it will be restored in the whole church. It will. Okay? And that is a healthy thing. Now, I mean, you have to be careful, obviously, and we'll talk about that. That's what I want to talk about. In a tiny book called A Tale of Three Kings, uh, Gene Edwards, that's the author, describes, compares the relationship between two sets of two people. One is the relationship between King Saul and David, and the other is King David and Absalom. And he compares these two th relationships. I mean, not comparing them necessarily, but he describes these two relationships, uh, you know, Absalom never knew Saul, so that is not the point, but the dynamic between these two relationships and how different they were and what results came out of them. So first is Saul and David. We know that Saul was a king, <clears throat> but because Saul failed 
and refused to repent, it's not just that he failed, but <coughs> his heart never changed. So God rejects him and chooses David as the next king. So while Saul is still the king physically, spiritually, God has already chosen David. So in God's mind, he's the king, right? It's just it's a matter of time. He's going to be the king. He's just kind of holding the position for now. That's the situation. But the important thing is, although David was anointed to be the king, and he was literally leading the nation, he was the leader in reality. He is leading the army, winning battles against the foreign powers. And at that time, in this, this is a city-state type of history, historical time. These are like, not like nations as we think of nations. It's basically a tribal thing. It's a city-state. Okay? And the main job of the leader was to fight to protect their people from neighboring tribes and, if possible, extend your territory. And this is exactly what David was doing. This, this is not a bureaucratical time with all this, you know, governments and stuff like that. It is very, very kind of like brutal, you know, down to the gutter type of that kind of kingship at, at this time. Okay, That's the time. And that's exactly what David was doing. Rescuing his people from oppression and enlarging the territory. But during this whole time, although he was already anointed and he was leading the nation, he completely submitted himself to Saul and his kingship. He knew he was anointed. He knew what he was doing. Okay? He was fighting and people were following him. Whole nation loved him more than Saul. Yet, he completely submitted to Saul. Now, these are all the stories that you know. Humble and submissive. The key is, he did not take the matters in his own hands. He was anointed. But he didn't go out and say, God has anointed me as a king. Let me make it happen. He could have. And it would have worked. But he did not do it. Although God had anointed, he kept his hands off and waited for God to move in his own time. He did not take the matters into his own hands. Rather, he submitted himself fully to the present leadership, which was Saul, who was a terrible king. Okay? Imagine a demonized king. Oh, my gosh. Saul was a demon. Can you imagine like Kim Jong-un? Oh my gosh. You have a demonized king sitting on the throne, yet David submitted himself to Saul. Think of it. It's kind of weird, okay? It's really, really, it's really something to consider. Then Saul becomes jealous and fearful that David would become the next king. So, he rallies up his entire army to pursue after David. Put yourself in David's shoes. You are this respected and beloved general, and now Saul is taking the whole army to pursue after you. And you have to imagine the kind of lies Saul spread. He could not simply have done it. He spread lies about David. We don't know what it is. But maybe he said David is trying to usurp the power. He's, you know, it's a treason and whatever. Okay, 
and people are believing the lies. So there's a slander against David, and his life is being threatened. Not only his life, he felt Saul would kill his parents and his brothers and sisters. So he took the, his extended family out to, um, to Moab, which is an enemy nation to Israel, because he thought they could only be protected under the enemies of Israel. This is a serious situation. Not only is that happening, you don't know the end. See, this is the trouble about suffering. When it is happening, you don't know when it's going to end. If you know when it's going to end, it's, it's not bad. You can handle it. But you have no idea when it's going to end. And that is happening in David's life. It happened something around 13 years. Do you know how long 13 years is? Have you gone through anything that is more than like three years? Severe challenge of your life? It's a very, very long time. If you're going through it, it's like eternity. You don't know when it's going to end. Constantly on a run for like 13 years. Even with all that, he submits to Saul. The test comes when God gives David two opportunities to kill Saul. You know the story well. He's resting in the cave, and uh, one time David has uh, either he cuts it off or one of his soldiers cuts it off, a little piece of, uh, 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 I think, Saul's cape. Okay, he, he didn't touch it. And then he felt so guilty for cutting that little piece. He's, ah, you know, he goes far off where Saul cannot touch him, but he, you know, you know, wails and repents and I'm, you know, I'm so sorry I cut that off, you know. But don't come chasing after me. I, I don't mean any evil to you. Just leave me alone. You know, just let me live. Okay, I, you know, I, I'm not think I'm not trying to be the king. Just leave me alone. Okay. And Saul repents, but David knows better because people don't change that easily. So he doesn't come back. <laughs> Although Saul says, oh, come back. You know, you're my son-in-law. Come back. David doesn't go back. Of course, when the demon enters again, he chases after uh, David once again. And this time, David doesn't even touch him, right? He takes the jug of, oil, jug of water and the spear and says, don't do it. You know, don't chase after me. And uh, Saul repents, okay? And then soon after that, Saul dies. Soon after that event. It was a test from God. Here's this man. Now I have anointed you are the king in my mind. You have been leading the nation. He's an evil king. I place his life at your disposal. It's up to you. If David killed him, I don't think God would have blamed him. It is a completely reasonable thing at so many different levels even for the sake of his own life, or even for his family, it is a completely reasonable thing. I don't think God would have blamed. I think God would have said, okay, done. Okay, you're the king. No, it would have happened that way. But when David did not do it twice, you know, in the Bible, when it happens twice, it does something, right? It does something. Like when uh, Egyptian Pharaoh had that dream twice, uh, Joseph comes out and says, the fact that you had 
you, you, this dream happened twice means God has determined it. When it happens twice, it is, something is secure at that place. So when David resists, God is saying, okay, it is done. It is done. Something is established here. I know that you will never touch Saul. And the reason David does not touch Saul, it is not because of Saul. The man deserves to die. All right? Simply out of self-defense, he deserves to die. But the reason David does not touch Saul is because of his reverence for God. Guess what he says? 1 Samuel 24, 6, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. It is for his reverence for God. God anointed you. When God anointed you, I'm not going to touch you. It is for, for his honor of God that he's saying, I'd rather risk that I will die than touch you. I am willing to die for my honor of God's name. That is what David is saying. And I believe this act, this something in God's heart. Do you know that God is an interactive God? You know, Greek, if you follow Greek philosophy, it's like everything becomes like a formula. But you know, God is not like that. You read the Bible. God is very, very interactive. How does it work? I don't know. Okay. I mean, I study philosophy, but it, it doesn't matter. Philosophers are so confused anyway. <laughs> like the most confused people, philosophers. I can talk about this thing for a long time, but I will not. But we know that God is very interactive. So when David chose to do this, I know it did something in the heart of God. I mean, how, how much would you love someone who, is, who says, Lord, I'm willing to die because of this evil man just because he is your anointed. I will not even touch him. I honor you that much. It does something to anyone's heart. Now we know that David is not, was not a perfect man or a perfect leader. Even before he uh, committed the adultery and the murder of a very innocent, loyal subject, if you read the Bible, you, if, you, if, if you're a psychologist and if you read David's story, you know that something's not quite right with this guy. Every woman that is nice, be my wife. <laughs> he has some need there. Something is missing there. I don't know what it is, okay? But something is missing. Okay, you're nice to me. Be my wife. I mean, he could do it because he was king. <laughs> but eventually that gets him into trouble. Eventually. He had, he had some... Real weakness in his character. But God stuck with David. Why? David was humble. He submitted for the honor of God. He had a profound respect and intimate love for God. And it was not just this emotional thing. That we, we, you know, I think so many times we confuse intimacy with just like, oh, I have this sweet feeling.
If you're going through a really hard time, you don't have sweet feeling. I will guarantee you, your child is like sick and you don't know what's going to happen to that child. You don't have sweet feeling. Will you still have intimacy? Yes, you can. But it is a different, different shade of intimacy. Okay? It is a color of the crimson of Jesus' blood. It is different kind of intimacy. And David had that intimacy. Lord, I lay my life down for your name. And God was not going to reject him. You know, David messed up many times. Thousands of people died because of his pride. Yet, God stuck with David all the way through. And finally, the Messiah comes through David's life. And I believe what David did to Saul has something to do with it. Because that was the climax of his test. In the point of weakness being chased after by this guy, by this time, more than 10 years. Okay. 10 year mark does something to you. You know that? Abraham, <laughs> if you read the Bible, when it's the 10th year, finally he decides, okay, I'll wait it long enough. Let's have Ishmael. Okay, that's what happens, 10th year. Okay, after 10th year. It does something psychologically. But even then, by this time he's thinking, wow, Saul anointed me, but he died. You know, it's probably a you know, hoax. It's not going to happen. So all kinds of thoughts are going through his mind. I just want to live. At that point of weakness, he still stayed with God. And for the honor of God's name, he would not touch Saul. And I think that's one of the reasons why God stuck with him all the way. I will never reject you because you went that way. This is what I want to talk about, this principle. You do not, know, you do not follow a leader because he or she is perfect. You follow... Because God chose him or her. That is the only reason. Let me repeat. You do not follow a leader because he or she is perfect. You follow him or her because what? God chose him or God chose her. That's it. And God does not choose perfect people. God chooses people who are after his heart. Different category, different standard. There is no perfect leader. There's only one perfect leader. That's Jesus. Everybody else falls short. There is no flawless leader. Even the great Saint Paul had flaws. He lost his temper sometimes. I know some great leaders who had some I mean, you know, it's all hidden. But I know one great leader whom God used to change a nation. He has such a temper. I mean, I'm not saying it's all okay. I mean, it, you have to get the right audience, okay? If you're a leader, you should not listen to it and say, oh, I can be like that. That's not the point, okay? It's to the followers. Your leaders may not be perfect, but you submit because God chose him. I know a, a man that God used to change a nation, okay? He has such temper. If people disagree, he will literally this Asia, right? 
throw the dinner table. It's so mad. Horrible. Not something that you should emulate at all. But God used them. Okay. Anyway. <clears throat> um, there is a difference between Western system and Eastern system, value-wise, as far as hierarchy is concerned. Western system now has become very, very egalitarian, almost like completely egalitarian. Managers are having such a hard time now, okay, because millennials, I, anybody millennials here? I'm not bashing you guys, okay? Yeah? I, you know, I hear like they have no work ethic. <laughs> what work ethic? What is work? <laughs> I should just get paid. They love socialism. Why? Free money. Okay, somebody's working, but I should get paid. All right, that's bad, okay? But anyway, it, it has become really, really egalitarian, okay? And I know guys in tech sector, and tech is a little bit different because there are not many uh, skilled workers to begin with. And millennials come and, uh, you know, it's so different from even like 10 years ago. Like day before they say, oh, tomorrow I got to take it off. What do you do as a manager? It's like, <laughs> very difficult, very difficult because you cannot fire the guy because you know that you cannot find workers out there. So what do you do? So all the onus basically is with the leaders. Leaders have to do all the work. If it is communication, in the Western system, the responsibility is with the leader. If you don't communicate well and they don't understand, it's your fault. That's how the communication goes, and with everything. In the Western system, the leader takes the fall. In the Eastern system, we're talking about traditionally Eastern Asian system, the follower takes the fall. The leader, let's say the president made a boo-boo, and he's going to get in trouble. His secretary will say, it was all my fault. He'll resign. That is the Eastern value. Communication-wise, the leader doesn't even say anything. You, it is your job to figure out what is in his head and do it. <laughs> that is the Eastern system. If you're like Asian, if you have a mom and dad, you know what I'm talking about. Mom, what do you want for your birthday? I don't want anything. I don't want anything. And if you're like stupid, Westerner, you'll say, mom didn't want anything. <laughs> oh my gosh, for the whole year, you'll be in hot waters, okay? You have to figure out what they want by asking their friends, what do their friends, you know, you know they receive for their birthday. You gotta figure it out and top it a little bit. <laughs> That's the Eastern value. The responsibility is with the follower. Now, what is biblical? Both. We believe in a God, our king, who became a man, humbled himself as a servant to serve us. That is egalitarian. But also, clearly in the scriptures, there is a hierarchy. God is king. Jesus shares two stories 
which seem to contradict each other. In one, Jesus says, if you're faithful to serve me, when the Son of God comes back, he will take the form of servant and serve you. This is like at a meal. He will serve you. But in another passage, he tells another story where he says, if you're a servant who worked at the farm for a long time and come back to the house, you know, where you're staying, and for dinner, would you just eat? No. You will wait until the master has finished eating. Only then you will eat, which is true. Both. So always the audience is important and the context is important. So if I were speaking to Pastor Q, I would say, you should be a servant to your people. And I believe, I know Pastor Q, I think he's plenty of a servant. My guess is he, he takes a lot of flack from you guys. Because I've known him for a long time. But during this thing, I'm not talking to Pastor Q. I'm talking to you guys. So you should be, I should honor and respect my leader, whoever my leader is. That pleases God because that is the authority that God has placed over you. And when you disrespect your leader, whether it is the pastor or elder or deacon, whatever it is, or your secular authority, you dishonor God. That's what happens. Let me tell you a story. I uh, am learning a lot at this new church. <clears throat> oh, I'm going ahead of my schedule, but, well, I started, so I might as well say it, okay? I have to come back later. <clears throat> I'm learning about a lot about leadership, very, very strong, mature leadership culture. I've been there only for seven months now, and uh, very Korean. Although he's like 1.5 generation, he's so Korean. I don't have a job description. <laughs> I get hired, like, what am I supposed to do? He doesn't say anything. So I just have to figure out, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> I'm full time. So I look around and I decide, okay, I think the whole, like, you know, this church is not very, it has some couple weak spots. So one of the things that I decide to take on myself is like uh, welcome and a new visitor care. Because so many visitors come, typically every Sunday, like 15 to 20, okay, new people checking out the church. We hardly catch anyone. <laughs> we hardly catch anyone because we don't have a system. So I observed, and one of the things that I tackled first thing was the welcome team. I thought Californians would be very like friendly, and they are, but I don't know why, but the welcome team is like typical Asian. New people come, and they're so shy, this welcome team, they kind of say, oh, you please go. It's like that, right? I said, oh my gosh, this is terrible. <laughs> They don't smile because they are afraid. I don't know why all these shy people signed up for welcome team. <laughs> I don't get it. So I'm like, this is, this is not working, you know. You cannot identify who's the welcome team because everybody, there's no uniform or anything like that. So I, uh, I, I decided, okay, I have to train them. Okay, so I'm a, I'm a, I'm a New Yorker, right? East, East Coast people are very, for the 
Californians, East Coast people are just very like crude and rude and rough and sharp and all that, right? So, and you know, I am a little bit more like intense than average East Coast people on top of that. So like one of the weeks after I take, decided, okay, I really have to work with this welcome team because they're not doing a good job. I said, okay, all right, you guys, this is how you do it. You stand over here, you stand over here, meaning I basically wanted them to stand in the middle of the way as people are walking in. And they're all like, like this. You don't know who they are. People are just walking in, right? I want you to stand in. Typical thing, the way I train our church people, you stand right in the middle. I had everybody wear a lei. That's our uniform. Okay, this plastic lei. Because you have to identify them somehow. Okay, so they know that who you are. You are like not typical anybody. You have a function. Everybody wears a lei, and they didn't want to wear it. Oh my God, just wear it. <laughs> <coughs> and then I said, okay, this is how you do it. You put a smile. I'm like literally training them. And I'm thinking like Korean like department stores. Have you been to Korean department store early in the morning? And you might say, oh, you know, they, they pra- you know what I'm talking about? They practice this thing like a thousand times every morning. Good morning. When the customers come in. You don't know, you don't know what I'm talking about. Don't worry about it. All right. <laughs> I'm training them. Okay, you put a smile. You stick out your hand if they're same gender and say, welcome. Welcome to Southland. That's it. So I, I, I do this thing. I'm feeling pretty good. In the middle of the week, the welcome team leader comes to visit me with her husband, who's an elder. And she says, in a very nice way, Pastor Danny, some people got really upset because you were too aggressive. And now I'm feeling really upset. Right? Because, I'm, man, I'm just trying to serve, and you know, I'm already getting a pushback here. I'm like, why? You know, this is, I'm getting really ticked off in my head. Oh, of course, I didn't say anything, but in my head, I'm like, my blood is going through my back of my head. <laughs> so I'm kind of just sitting there just trying to control myself without getting upset. But what the elder said after that changed everything. This is what he said. Pastor, if you have anything that you want to say to our people, tell us. We will tell them. We will do the dirty job because we want you to look good. We will be the bad cop so that you can be the good cop because we need you to be the pastor. When people look at you, we don't want anybody to have any ill feelings. When people look at you, they only have positive thoughts because you're always a nice guy because we need you to be the pastor. That's maturity. I was so impressed. So later on, I asked, where did you learn that? Because you know, in most churches, the churches that I pastored, it's completely the opposite way. They have something bad to say about somebody, somebody else, they come to the pastor. Pastor, this person did X, Y, Z, would you talk to her? They try, triangulate the pastor so that the pastor does a dirty job so that he looks okay, 
In the meantime, the pastor is using his ministry capital. Very, very immature. Right? So I was so impressed as I said, where did you learn that? And this is what he said. Our senior pastor's name is Keith. Pastor Keith told us. He told, this is how he trains his elders. You guys have to be the bad cop. <laughs> because I'm the pastor, and they have to see me as a good guy. So you be the bad guy. That's maturity. That's courage. I did not have the guts to say that. That thought even ne never entered my mind, but I said, wow. That is mature. He is so he is so aware of what needs to be done. He's able and he's, you know, strong and courageous, courageous enough. He can tell the elders, "You be the bad guy, okay? Because it's okay for you. Because you, I mean, you are kind of your peers. You are lay people. Lay people say some bad things. Ah, you know, he's just a lay person. But if the pastor says something negative." It just goes through the heart. That, may, that person may leave the church. So we don't, you know, you have to be the bad guy. So Pastor Keith is always a nice guy. He's <laughs> always a nice guy. <laughs> he complains to the elders and they take care of it. You with me? Uh, who's, uh, which is the football team for you guys? Is it Ravens or is it Redskins? Redskins? Okay, Redskins. Uh, in a football, <laughs> pretty strong Redskins. In a football team, if you will compare it to the football team, the senior pastor is a quarterback. Okay? And every leader has a position. You're running back, or you're wide receiver, or whatever. You know, the pastor hands over the ball and you go for it. Okay? You have a role, right? Why am I looking? I'm not looking at blank face. You understand what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> you have a role, you know, different positions. And, but important thing is, in a football game, except for the quarterback, even quarterback sometimes, but usually not the quarterback, although you may be a running back, wide receiver, whatever your role may be, everybody plays block. Okay? And who are you protecting usually? You block that attack. And it is not only through prayer. You have to pray, obviously, for your pastor or your leaders. But also, if the negative things come, you block. American way is not like that. Christian come, it goes straight. There's no defense. Nobody blocks it. It goes straight. Okay? The top leader receives the most criticism. All the time. But that is not a biblical way. You're, whoever, you, whatever your position may be, you are supposed to play block. If somebody begins to criticize, say, okay, wait up here. You have to be the defense. Let's go back. <clears throat> When you honor those who God placed over you, God will honor you. Let me tell you a little bit of my, my story. 
um, until now, I had only three, actually, three uh, uh, bosses in ministry. And um, before I planted the church, the pastor that I served was uh, Reverend Kim. And that's like one quarter of all the pastors. Uh, Reverend Kim, and um, he was the difficult person. Actually, when I, right before I started, I had spent one year in Korea, and I had just come back, and you know I was called from Korea, so I was gonna, I was about to start, and uh, a person that knew me from Korea, where I was doing internship. When she found out I was, I was about to start at this church, she said, don't go there. <laughs> you know, because the senior pastor drives people crazy, drives the staff crazy. You know. His father died as a martyr during Korean War by the communists, and he really had a martyr complex. I think he wanted to die while preaching. <laughs> he still is alive and healthy. <laughs> He was an absolute workaholic. At the beginning, I mean, I, my day started at 4.45 in the morning, where I would get up and get, you know, I would get up at like, uh, you know, 4.30 typically, get quickly. I mean, you can get ready really quick, right? I would get ready at quick, like five, 10 minutes, I'll be ready, I'll be out the door by 4.45. I'll arrive at church like 5.15, open the church, because morning prayer started at 5.30. And the associate pastors led morning prayer, not the senior pastor. We had to get the ready, and we preached every morning. Okay. I got into two car accidents because I was dozing off. Almost died one time. Like I was dozing off, and I opened my eye, and there is this huge pole <laughs> coming toward me. So I, I swear my side mirror got busted, and uh, I came to church, and... Uh, pastor was happy because I was working so hard. One time he came to our office and he said, I'm just joking. I'm not mocking him, okay? I'm just, for fun, I'm joking. He said, how come I don't see any, anyone nosebleed? And he was just saying it so calmly. I like freaked out. I said, what are you, you, you know when you nosebleed, right? When you're so tired, you just kind of, you're working. You just, you know. He wanted us to nosebleed. I mean, that was the kind of pastor, boss I had. And, uh, you know, I, I work hard. And, uh, and then my day would end at like 11.30 every day. I mean, I always had this fatigue on my shoulder all the time. I thought that was like how you're supposed to be all the time. It took me years after I left the church to get out of that uh, workaholism. And I, I probably never got out completely, you know. But uh, tough boss, uh, he made some bad decisions, like a typical Korean generation pastor. They just make a decision. They don't talk to anybody. You don't know what I'm talking about. It's all right. They just, and then it didn't go well. Ah, do something else. <laughs> just flip-flop like that. But when I saw him, I actually saw a genuine real pastor. He's not a perfect man. And right before I started there, God taught the lesson that I'm teaching you right now. 
I was doing my QT about um, in first, first Samuel, and I saw how David treat exactly what I shared with you. Okay? And I, I resolved during that one year time, whoever I serve, I will submit. That was my decision internally before I started at that church. And when I saw him, I said, he's not a perfect man. You know, he's a flawed man, but he loves the Lord. He loves his flock. He's a, real, he's a true pastor. I will serve him. And then, you know, there were a handful of assistant staff, and I was one of them. And, you know, followers always see what's wrong with the leader. It just comes with the territory. And because he was a tough boss, people had a lot of complaints. And when we gathered together for lunch, if the senior pastor is not there, they will constantly complain about the senior pastor. I just walked away. I didn't want to stay in that conversation. because I, and I could have rebuked them, but I was chicken. So I didn't like, ah, you should not do that. I didn't do that. Okay. <laughs> I just walked away. I just didn't, did not want to be a part of the conversation. I just walked away. Okay? I mean, I knew that he was not a perfect man. That was not the point. The point is, is he, does he love God? Is he, is he a true pastor? That's all that, that was important to me. There was, this is not why I did it, but I received perhaps the greatest favor in my ministry career, if you would call it career. He gave me the church that I planted. I served there for five years, at which point I felt God was, God was calling me to plant a church, so I went up and said, you know, I gave my resignation letter. I said, this is my month notice. I will leave in a month. He thought I was going to stay with him for, forever. <laughs> he really did. He was so shocked. This is my uh, resignation. I, f I feel, you know, I believe God is calling me to plant a church. And my plan was to plant a church like at least 30 minutes away. What I consider was an ethical distance. You know, far enough, like at least like 20 miles away. Because most people drive 15 to 20 miles, at least in our area. Okay, I would go at least 30 miles away. And then, you know, some people will follow, but it will not be a whole lot. handful of people maybe. Okay, and then... You know, my wife's job was starting in, right in the neighborhood of the church, but I would, I would go off and start a church. And that's what I told him. And then he did something amazing. He actually convinced all the leaders, all the deacons and all the elders one-on-one -on -one and said, we should bless Danny Han and let him plant a church. It should be our church plant. That had never been done. It had rarely been done in, at least in the Korean church history in America. Our church was like the third or something of that sort. And our senior pastor was not this progressive, open-minded man. He was very, very conservative man. He would have never done it. Okay? But, so we planted a church next town over. And I could not find a church, you know, because all the, you know, Caucasian churches are occupied by Korean churches. We could not find a church. So I came to him and I said, because, uh, you know, something opened up, like, literally like a mile down, okay, next town, but literally a mile down. And he said, wow, should I rent that church? So I went to him and said, oh, you know, this thing opened up, what should I do? And he said, hey, if you need to, I don't mind you opening a church right next door. 
And they still had their EM going. About you know, two-thirds of us came out to plant the church. About a third, about 40% remained behind. So they still had their EM church going. But he said, you can start right next door. I just want you to succeed. We're still close after all these years. That's not why I did it. But, I mean, you never know, right? God looks at the heart. Anyway, uh, let me continue. Okay, it's been a long time. Do you need a break? Are you okay? Okay, let's continue then. I, you know, maybe. I will not tell you how long. Then you're going to look at the clock. <laughs> David and Absalom. Now, the second relationship. Absalom was David's son. But Absalom treated David the opposite of how David treated Saul. This is his own father. It begins actually with David's flaws. It actually begins with David's sins, his adultery, and then murder. So according to the Israel law, he is liable for double death. Each crime is, deserves death by penalty. But God said, no, don't kill him, right? So he survived. But he's guilty. David is guilty. Everyone found out about David's failure, you have to assume. Everybody that was close in the palace found out about David's fault. So you can imagine what they're saying, you know, you know, surreptitiously in the background. Oh, did you hear what really went down? Okay, so people's hearts are turning against David already. That is happening. On top of that, David makes one more fatal error. He had many wives, <clears throat> and uh, his eldest son, Amnon rapes his half-sister, Tamar. And David does not discipline the guy. He doesn't do anything. Maybe David felt, this is what happens when we sin, right? We lose authority. Maybe David felt, hey, I'm an adulterer. Who am I to, I mean, oh, who am I to discipline my own kid? And I kill the guy. I don't know why, but he, he takes no action, completely like a passive father here. Now, Absalom, Tamar happened to be Absalom's sister. So from that very moment, Absalom begins to conspire rebellion against his own father, right there. You can imagine Absalom's ima reasoning, his thinking, my father is unfit to be a king. It begins with emotion, right? We have emotion first, and then we add reason to it. That's how a lot of times human mind works. We don't start with reason. Okay? You have some gut feeling. You're angry. And he says, my father is unfit to be king, which is true according to the law. He's a murderer. He's an adulterer. On top of that, he cannot even manage his own house. How can he be the king? He has all these things going on. And they were true. And he thinks, I can do a better job. 
people would be more fortunate to have me as a king. And he was a sharp guy. If you read the scriptures, you find he had both EQ and IQ. He just, he just won. He wrapped people's hearts around his finger. People became his. Generals and top advisors joined the ranks. So he has this massive following now. And David, at this all this time, I think he was just roiled in his problems. Okay? He has no idea what's going on. And he, of, of course, he's not going to suspect his own son. But all this thing is building up in the background while David has no clue. He's not suspecting anything. Because all these were his loyal subjects, generals and advisors. And he incited the rebellion. <clears throat> In any organization, you will always find people who are disgruntled about the leadership. Any organization. Because nobody is flawless leader. Just not there. Okay? And all these people who are disgruntled gather around Absalom. Now, Absalom would have succeeded. He was supposed to succeed. He had everything right according to human planning. Generals, advisors, the people, people's hearts are with Absalom. They have left David already in their minds you know, because David's problems. Except God's intervention. Supernatural, tiny intervention. You know the story if you read the Bible. Okay? Just one advice turns everything around. Okay? And Absalom's advisor was so smart, the Bible says, his advice was like a prophecy. It's like a word of God because he can see through. And when his advice is not taken, he immediately realizes it's over. He goes and hangs himself. That one word turn, turns the tide. God raises David's hand. Why? Because God looks at the heart. Absalom had all the reasons right. He probably was most qualified. He was smart, charming, people loved to follow him and all that. But his heart was proud, self-seeking, disloyal, and God was not pleased. God raised David's hand, and Absalom dies. Let me say again, we don't follow a leader because he or she is perfect. We follow a leader because... Because God had chosen him or her. And God does not choose a perfect person. God chooses a person after his own heart. Who would you choose to be? Would you choose to be a David or Absalom? That's your choice. We choose our own destiny. And it's about the direction of our heart. Which way do you want to go? Do you want to be like David? who say, Lord, because I honor you, I will respect my leader, even if it costs my life. Or because you see what's, what he's doing wrong, you say, I'm going to usurp you know, his authority, I'm going to challenge him, I'm going to knock him down, because he does not know what he's doing. It's your choice. Now, by saying that, I do not mean... <clears throat> You never challenge your leaders 
ideas. Okay, it's not like a rigid hierarchy where it's like, you know, authoritarian. That is not biblical. But have you heard the concept of leading from below? Anyone? Huh? From beneath, below, leading from below? You haven't. You know, you're, most of you work in some kind of corporation, right? In an organization. And typically we think the one who is superior to us leads, which is true. But you know sometimes the one that is below needs to lead. You don't know the concept. Okay, let me, let me explain. Let's say, for example, because you're at the ground level, you see things happening at, in that area much better than the person that is removed from it, right? So you see the problem and possibly the solution very well. Now the difference is that the one who is above you, you see the whole picture, so different perspective. But with people in different perspective, they have different advantages and disadvantages. So sometimes the leader that is on top is blind to what's really happening. This, this has been typical American corporation problems. They make decisions that are like, what? Customers don't want that. But they'll just produce it. Because for whatever reasons, they, they do it. Nobody buys it. Okay. This has happened many, many times okay, in American history. Uh, the difference with, for example, this is an aside, but one of the reasons American auto uh, manufacturers lost the market share exceedingly uh, compared to Japanese was because Japanese had the philosophy of doing thorough investigation at the ground level. What do the customers want? How do we really manufacture things much more efficiently? They did all the groundwork, while Americans were just so bureaucratic because they have run it that way for so long. And they just made bad decision after bad decision, produced cars that just fails and nobody wants time after time. And that's, they lost like 30% of the market share within, I don't know, like two decades or something, which is huge. We're talking about a lot of money, okay? So different people at different levels have different perspective, but sometimes, the person who is organizationally lower has, has to give his or her input, and by doing so, you are, le you are leading your boss. And this is the most difficult kind of leadership, but you have to do it. So there is a leadership from the top, there's a peer leadership, but there is a, also leadership from below. Okay? Uh, I had one who was wonderful, my uh, secretary, who eventually became uh, you know, chief administrator at our church. For, she studied management, you know, and she has an MBA, she had an MBA, and uh, she was just wonderful because she kind of figured out how my mind works. She figured out how to approach me, and because you have to be smart, okay, you have to have a tact. You know, because if you approach some way, your boss will just not listen. It's like husband and wife. I'm not saying husband is the boss and wife is whatever, but oh my gosh, you know, some wives, they just, <laughs> <laughs> they think the most effective way is like nagging and complaining. It's like that's the worst way because you go the direction of nagging and complaining, accusation, why ah, didn't you do that? Psychologically, it just immediately turns the, the person's heart into defensive mode. Everybody does that, right? 
So you are creating a situation where you are shooting yourself on the foot. You are turning that person against you so that he has overcome another barrier to really listen to you. Because if he, through nagging and complaining and accusation, if he does what you want to do, he will do it, but you lose a piece of his heart. Next time, it becomes a little bit more difficult. Here we go again. Okay, You're shooting yourself. So it is about how to present. And if you read some books, they teach how to present. They say, use pictorial language. You know. so, so some says, oh, you know, you know, you make a nice dinner or whatever. Your, your husband is in a good mood for whatever reason. You say, oh, honey, these days I feel like, I'm just making it up, okay? I feel like I am like a, the stream has run dry. I'm like a withered flower. <laughs> Because a normal husband, I know that some are not normal, but normal husbands is naturally inclined to find satisfaction in making his wife happy. This is a normal, normal human being. I know many of you are not normal, okay, so. <laughs> so that's a different issue I cannot deal with right now, okay? But that's normal, like which husband feels satisfied? I mean, you married that woman, right? I mean, if she's not happy, you're failing. <laughs> Which husband would be happy there? No, that's not normal. Like, a husband, I mean, it's different from, from woman's happiness. A man's happiness is, is different color. Okay? Man feels like, oh, wow, I've done, I'm doing my job. There is a sense of accomplishment. My wife is happy. Like, that makes me really happy. Okay? That's a normal man. Am I right? There's no normal man in this church. <laughs> so if you present it in, in ways that kind of, if you present like, I'm like the wither, I feel like I'm withered the floor, flower because the stream has run dry. The husband immediately goes, why, what, what, what's happening? Okay. Why do you feel that way? And then you present. Then you say, oh, you're, you know, I feel like you're so, you know, I know your business is important, but you're so busy, I hardly get to see you, you know. I feel like even when we're together, you don't pay attention or whatever. You, know, you present. Then, you know, he's, you know, men are like problem solvers. They're different from women, right? Immediately, the, the moment they hear a problem, they, you know, the machine is running. It's like, how do I figure this thing out? How do I solve this problem? That's what they do. Okay? That's what they do. I'm giving that as an illustration of how to lead from below. I'm not saying women are below, okay? okay? I'm not saying that. Please understand. It's just an illustration, okay? So with people who are superior to you in organizational level, you have to learn how to present. What do most people do? They just go back and complain. You're, you're, let's just call it boss, although here we're talking church organization, but this applies across the board. Your boss does not know what the problem is. You only hear complaints. No boss wants to hear complaints. Do you know that? Many of you are in boss. You know, most of us are in a position where you're leading some people, you're reporting to some people, right? No one wants to hear complaints. Okay? It's like, it's not a, you know, you hear the complaint, the stress level just goes up all the time. Nobody wants to hear that. Okay? Especially when it comes as an accusation. Increase. Nobody wants it. 
So you don't talk to him because you don't know how to talk to him or her. You just complain the back. The problem doesn't get resolved. You have to learn how to lead from below. How do I present? What is the language that he understands? See, when I was serving under Pastor Kim, going back to my story, he was a tough boss. <clears throat> and I'm not a, a, you know, I'm low on EQ. People tell me, you are low on EQ. <laughs> so if I can do it, you can do it. All right? But I observed, I mean, he made me do so many things. I mean, you, can, you will not believe. When I first, he's all about visitation. He said, whoever you visit, you, I want you to write a report. I said, oh, my God, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I mean, I'm thinking, like, do you know how much work are you giving me? I am, like, already up to my gill. I mean, I, you know, one time I wrote all my just job description headings on a piece of paper. It was overflowing. Headings. Okay, I was an EM pastor, I was an education pastor, I was a youth pastor, I was a secretary, English secretary, I was morning prayer, I was, you know, he made me go to uh, somebody's uh, super, he owned a supermarket, he wanted to have a business service, so every Thursday afternoon I went to lead the service, and, you know, all these things. And he was going to add one more. By the time I had it, so I actually wrote it all out. I said, you know, pastor, these all the things that you are asking me to do, I cannot do anymore. He got really upset. But he heard it. So he, he stopped giving me more work. Okay. But the key I found out was, I'll give you two illustrations. One time, so he asked me to write this report. So I wrote it, put it on his table. After a few months, I realized he never reads it. He just wants control. Okay, he just wants those reports. Okay, so after a while, I stopped writing. Because I realized he never reads it. He just wanted to know. He just wanted to make sure that I was doing my job. And I proved that I'm doing my job. I quit writing. Okay? And if he was going to ask me to write again, I would, maybe I would have written, written, continued to write, or tell him, you know, you know, this is really inhibiting my work. Okay? He had me wear Catholic color. Do you know how like, self-destructive that is to EM ministry? Okay? I wore it for like a year. I'll obey. I'll submit. And finally, when I felt I won his confidence, his trust, I said, you know, Pastor, this is really not helping the ministry. <laughs> and then he said, okay, you don't have to wear it. Everybody had to wear it except for me. <laughs> and youth pastors did not wear it because they were not like ordained pastors. I was the only one who did not have to wear it. Okay? But the real trick was what I figured out. I, I observed him very carefully, and I realized you know, when I present a new idea, first time he'll say no. I present it second time, he'll say no. By the third time, I note, I observed, his mind began to open up. Okay? So that was his language. So if I wanted some change, how I would present it, not like week after week, but intermittently. And eventually, I guess it's like inception. You know the movie Inception? You kind of, you put that idea in his mind little by little. So eventually he thinks, oh, maybe I thought that. <laughs> the point is, you can lead from below. There is literature out there you can read, okay? 
do not just complain. You, you, you find the language, for example, that Pastor Q speaks. I would say do not approach with accusation or complaint. That is not respectful. You present. Okay. Anyway, let me close. <coughs> uh, let me see, just make sure. The passage that we read is about the life of Moses. And life of one of the lessons that we draw from Moses is the lesson of leadership. And uh, Moses was a reluctant leader. He did not want the leadership job. But he proved to be the most faithful leader. Reluctant, but faithful. He interceded for his people even to the point he said, Take my name out of the book of life and give my people a second chance. That is a leader. Now, one of the lessons that we draw from Moses is about criticism and challenge. Moses was severely challenged in his leadership. And the passage that we read about Miriam and Aaron challenging his leadership is the beginning of the leadership challenge. If you read through the book of Numbers, that grows and grows and grows. It begins with Miriam and Aaron. Then it goes to the sons of Korah. You know the story. These are the leaders. These are like deacons and elders. No, no, no. These are deacons, let's say. Let's say Moses was Pastor Q. Miriam and Aaron were the elders. It would be like that. Sons of Korah are like the deacons. Next level of leadership. They rebel against Moses. Ground opens up, swallows them. Okay. And it doesn't start stop there. Then the whole people rebel. And then God sends fire serpents. But leadership is often challenged. It's not an easy thing. I want to look at this story quickly. I'm almost done. The rebellion comes from those who are closest. It was from his own family members, Miriam and Aaron. The challenge came first. And once again here, it's not Moses was really did the right thing. He married an Ethiopian woman who is like a Gentile, you know. Should, given in their context, should the national leader who is fighting for the purity of the nation marry a Gentile person? I don't know. But at least Miriam and Aaron thought it was not a right thing. So there was some ground for the challenge, but they challenged Moses. Why do rebellions come from those who are closest? For two reasons. One, because they see more. You get close enough to anyone, you see the dirt. You see what's wrong with that person. And again, we go back to this thing again and again and again. There's no perfect leader. Every one of us has, have chinks. And we, are all, we all have our issues. Okay, that's the gospel. And if you get close enough, you begin to see, ah, oh, what irks you about that person? Second reason, 
is because those who are closest to the leader also has certain level of authority. And they begin to think, hey, I can do it too. It's not only you. That was exactly what was happening with Miriam and Aaron. Hey, it's not only you hear God. I hear God too. Which is true. So that puts you at a dangerous place. But if you overstep your leadership boundary, you'll be judged by God. Okay? So, let's repeat. We do not follow a leader because he's perfect or she is perfect. But we follow the leader because Amen. Let's pray. <laughs> Why don't we take some time to pray for Pastor Q and Pastor Mimi and uh, Joy. Please come up. Would you come? Yeah. I, I think I'm in you. I, I don't see any other. Please come. Would you guys stand right here? And uh, would everyone come up? Okay. Okay. Pastor can stand in the middle, and the other two can stand on these different sides. Okay. Okay. <coughs> Please come quickly. And let's pray for them. And as you're praying for them, I hope. I know that you don't see a perfect man, okay? But I hope see I hope you see a perfect woman, okay? But I hope you see a true man of God or woman of God who loves the Lord, who loves his sheep, okay? It is your job to support them, love them, and not only love them, but protect them. Choose to be a David and not an Absalom. Okay, so just pray for yourself and take some time to just pray for, you know, your leaders.